first reading this morning comes from Acts 11, starting at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians, first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And our second reading is from Acts 13, starting at verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're well this morning. Lovely to be with you. My name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers. And thanks so much, Sue, for reading the Bible for us. It's going to be really helpful for you to have Acts chapter 11 open in front of you. It'll help me as well. Uh, Sue, of course, is part of the Soup Kitchen team. We're going to be watching a video about them um, just after the sermon. So stay tuned for that. I'm going to pray and then we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your testament to the work of the gospel uh, in the book of Acts. And we pray that you would speak through it now for our benefit and encouragement. Amen. Well, uh, corporate mission statements didn't become a thing until the mid-1980s, as I understand it. And I hope you know what I'm talking about, those one or two sentence kind of aspirational, inspirational statements that describe what an organisation exists for, or perhaps what it dreams of becoming, that typically get framed and hung on walls and printed on flyers and are prominent on websites. Apparently they weren't really a thing before the mid-1980s. And some say that they're outdated now, look, I don't think so, but just because you've got a mission statement, it doesn't mean it's going to change your world. For starters, there are some pretty ordinary mission statements out there. So have a guess what industry this one comes from. 
to provide authentic hospitality by making a difference in the lives of people we touch every day. What industry do you reckon that's from? It's actually from an airline, Southwest Airlines in the US. Frankly, I don't care about your hospitality if you can't land the plane safely. You know, we enjoyed great fried chicken and then we crashed into a mountain. It doesn't really work. And for that matter, I don't want you to touch me on any day. <laughs> Here's another disappointment. See if you can work out which industry this one comes from. To be one of the world's leading producers and providers of entertainment and information, using its portfolio of brands to differentiate its content, services, and consumer products. Have you worked out where it's from? You haven't. It's from Disney. Can you believe that? Disney. Uh, like Little Mermaid, Lion King, Akuna Matata, and all that. Disneyland. More recently, Toy Story, Finding Nemo, and Star Wars. Shouldn't there be something in Disney's mission statement about imagination? about storytelling, about magic. So you, you could have a dud mission statement for sure. Uh, the even bigger problem with mission statements is making them make a difference. How do you get what's hanging on the wall to make a difference down the hall or in the factory or in the office or the studio or the kitchen or wherever the real work happens? That's the real test of a mission statement. Is it just words or do those words lead to a change in action at ground level? Now, the reason why I've started with mission statements is because the church has its own mission statement. And I'm not talking about St. Matthew's Manly right now. I'm talking about the entire Christian church, the Christian faith, really. Do you know where it is? And do you know who crafted it? I'm sure you do. It's called the Great Commission from Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 19. And it reads like this. Then Jesus came to them, that's the 11 remaining disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. Uh, I suppose including this command here in Matthew 28. And so the question before us today is whether this mission statement, or commission statement really, beautifully crafted I might add, inspirational, aspirational for a tiny little movement of only 11 people at this point, does it make any difference at ground level? It looks great on the wall. But does it change what happens down in the hall? Well, today in Acts chapter 11, we see that it does in quite a remarkable way. We are into the second week of our Beyond series, which plots the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem from Acts chapters 10 to 19, as we consider proclaiming, sharing the good news of Jesus in Manly and beyond, particularly at this time as our city reopens, as people emerge from lockdown. So what I would like to do today is to look at the constituent parts of Jesus' Great Commission, each element, and see how they played out in a large city called Antioch in Acts chapter 11, before we think about any uh, appropriate or applicable principles for us here on the northern beaches. And so the first element of the Great Commission is go and make disciples. And as you can see from chapter 11, verse 19, so have that open in front of you, the action has moved north out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, in fact, to Phoenicia, that's uh, Lebanon, to Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean Sea, and to Antioch in Syria. 
But if you look in your Bibles in verse 19, we're reminded that the early disciples of Jesus didn't really go to these places, at least not voluntarily. They ended up there after escaping persecution in Jerusalem, after Stephen was killed by Jewish officials with a certain Saul giving approval to Stephen's death. By the time we get to chapter 11, verse 20, the action focuses on the city of Antioch in Syria, which is significant in itself because Antioch was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world. I didn't know this. Behind Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. It had half a million people. It was a um, political and administrative centre. It was a commercial centre. It was a uh, cosmopolitan melting pot of cultures because Antioch sort of connected the the urbanized western mediterranean world with the eastern desert and so it contained the usual greek population a jewish community but also people from persia like iraq and even as far as india and china like it's quite extraordinary it was also known as antioch the beautiful it was famous for its long paved boulevard flanked by a double colonnade with trees and fountains like seriously forget byron bay this is where you're booking your freedom trip to was sort of like a Paris of the ancient world, a very significant place. But these unnamed disciples, especially those from Cyprus, remember that's the island in the Mediterranean, and Cyrene, that's kind of modern-day Libya in North Africa, they took the gospel to Antioch. And verse 21, the Lord was with them, even though they remained unnamed, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. I mean, just... Think about it, insignificant people with a hugely significant ministry, anonymous folks, part of a famous work of God. Go and make disciples. Well, they well and truly did that. They went to a new place outside Jerusalem, beyond Israel, and they caused a ruckus. But when we consider the second part of the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, then we can detect a second significant element to this work of God because these unnamed people from Cyprus and Cyrene took the gospel of Jesus, in verse 20, to Greeks also. Um, You see there in verse 19, the scattered Jerusalem Jews who'd become Christians, they spoke about Jesus wherever they went, but it didn't occur to them to speak to people who weren't also Jewish. I mean, maybe they didn't get Peter's memo after the conversion of Cornelius that we looked at last week. You can see there in verse 18, Peter says, or the apostles say, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Perhaps these folks ignored it because it just made them too uncomfortable. But these chaps from Cyprus and Cyrene, they got the memo. At the very least, they got the idea that the news was too good to keep to the Jews. Greeks or Gentiles needed to hear it too, and boy, did they devour it. Uh, In fact, if we uh, flip ahead, scoot ahead to Acts chapter 13, verse 1, we learn that both rank and file believers and the Antiochian leadership mimics the diversity of that city. So there's Barnabas, a Cypriot Jew. There is a guy called Simeon, who's also called Niger. It means black. That's where we get the country Nigeria from. He was a black man from sub-Saharan Africa, Ethiopia or the like. There was a guy called Lucius of Cyrene, uh, North Africa, as well as Menaean, who grew up in the royal household as the foster brother of Herod. Remember, he was the king who killed John the Baptist. There's quite a mix here. You've got disciples of all nations now leading and discipling disciples of all nations. 
Well, I don't know if you heard the story of the village idiot who um, stumbled upon the town priest baptising people in the river. Uh, he thought he'd join in, and when it gets to his turn, the priest kind of dunks his head under the water, and when he gets back up, the priest asks the man if he'd found Jesus, to which he responded, no. So the priest dunks him underwater again, this time a little longer, and again when he pops back up, the priest asks him if he's found Jesus, and for a second time, he says No. And so the priest dunks him under one more time. This time he kept the man underwater for quite a while. When he comes back up, the priest asks for a final time if he'd found Jesus. The man goes, are you sure this is where he fell in? (laughs) Which I hope you at least smirked, right? It's hard telling jokes to a camera. (laughs) Now baptism, it's the outward sign, of course, of an inner reality that people have found Jesus. That is, believed in him and turned to him to use the words of verse 23. Of course, the sheer act of being dunked in water or sprinkled with water doesn't make you a Christian, but it symbolizes that you've become a Christian. And although our passage today doesn't explicitly mention baptism, we know from the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch back in Acts chapter 8 and the conversion of Cornelius that we looked at last week that these early converts were baptized pretty much when they first turn and trust in Jesus. So that Jesus' command to baptise disciples could almost be thought of as code word for the the very early stage of conversion, now a first belief. Now, did that happen here in Antioch? Well, it tells us for sure it did, in great numbers. But of course, the job is not done once someone becomes a Christian and gets baptised. That's the start of a, a lifelong journey of discipleship, of study and learning and following Jesus. What the Great Commission calls teaching them to obey. And we see this from verse 24 onwards. Head office, the church in Jerusalem gets wind of the fact that lots of Gentiles are turning to Jesus in Antioch. And obviously they're interested in this intriguing new development. No doubt some would have been suspicious Some would have been curious, but the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas, which was a great move because Barnabas was encouraging. In fact, his name means son of encouragement. What a great name. And as it turns out, he was a Cypriot Jew himself, that is Greek by birth, Jewish by creed. So already he's a bit of a mixed offering. He was likely to have, I guess, wider sympathies than the the stricter Jerusalem Jewish Christians. And so verse 23, Barnabas sees this new work of God and he's glad about it. And he encourages them to go the distance, to remain true to the Lord Jesus with all their hearts. What a great description. And he stays there, continuing to teach and encourage these new believers But good leadership usually leads to good fruit. And so lo and behold, verse 24, with the presence of Barnabas and for the second time in just a few few verses, another great number of people were brought to the Lord. Well, that's terrific. But now there's a pretty big job for Barnabas. And he realises that if he's going to disciple these new believers, he's going to need some backup. And so he recruits the Apostle Paul. I wonder if he's the first guy or the only guy to actually recruit the Apostle Paul, still known as Saul there in verse 25. And together they'll teach the church. You'll see great numbers mentioned for a third time there in verse 26. Taught them for a whole year. So you can imagine that that church enjoyed some pretty good tutelage. Well, it must have because the believers there garnered quite a reputation, so much so that they earned the the distinctive nickname Christians for themselves for the first time there. 
apparently the residents in Antioch were quick-witted. They enjoyed nicknames. Maybe they had locals called Damo, Tomo, Bluey and Mad Dog as well. And I don't know whether this term Christian was a term of derision or curiosity or perhaps even kind of affection, but the instruction of Barnabas and Saul made an observable difference in their lives, which could easily be traced back to their worship of the one called the Christ, for they were first called Christians there in Antioch. And the second way that you could tell that these early followers of Jesus had been taught and were teaching one another what Jesus had commanded arose when Agabus predicted a severe famine, which took place in AD 45 to 48, and it's attested by uh, the historian Josephus. Because these new Gentile believers, they don't say, look, it's really not our problem. Uh, They don't even say, there's not much we can do, but we'll pray for you. Have a look at what happens in verse 29. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Now, I just think that sort of generosity is not native to us as humans. To give to people you'd never met, to even refer to them as brothers and sisters, and to give funds in advance of the need. You just don't hear about that. That sort of generosity, from each according to ability, to those according to need in advance, only came from teaching and instruction in the Word under the influence of the Holy Spirit. These new disciples in Antioch, Antioch the beautiful, were beautiful themselves. They lived such distinctive Christian lives that the locals were impressed enough to give them a nickname. They lived such transformed lives that they gave money and even loyalty to other Christians of a different ethnic background whom they'd never even met. They had turned to the Lord in great numbers and then been taught in the Lord to great effect. Some of you might know this lady uh, is the American comedian, or was the American comedian, Joan Rivers. And uh, she was a real pioneer for female comics. She was the first woman to host her own late-night network television show in America. She's been counted as a major influence upon many of today's top comedians, including um, David Letterman, John Stewart, Amy Schumer. Towards the end of her career, she became just as well known for cosmetic procedures as for comedy. And so she even joked about herself. She said, I've had so much plastic surgery when I dial, they'll donate my body to Tupperware. <laughs> because it's nice to be able to joke about yourself, isn't it? This is what she quipped about domestic life. I hate housework. You make the beds, you do the dishes. Six months later, you have to start all over again. And that kind of is the thing with housework, isn't it? You do it. And then you start all over again. And that's the thing with the Great Commission as well, the mission statement of the church. You go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. But one of the key things to obey is the Great Commission to go and make disciples. And it starts all over again, Uh, which, of course, is so much more exciting than housework, isn't it? In uh, chapter 13, verse 1 to 3 there, the diverse leadership team of prophets and teachers, you know, there's Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, Lucius, the Libyan, Menaean, and Saul, 
under the instruction of the Holy Spirit, start all over again. They designate Barnabas and Saul for the next phase of the mission. They pray and they fast and place their hands on them and then send them on with the mission to reach the Gentiles with the good news of Jesus. And it wouldn't have escaped your attention that they were prepared to part with their very best. I mean, Barnabas and Saul, they're on every team's first draft pick. But the church in Antioch sends their best off to start all over again. So, did Jesus' mission statement make a difference at ground level? Well, it certainly did in Antioch. Early disciples went and made other disciples from the nations, converting and presumably baptizing them, teaching them to obey Jesus to the extent that it made a noticeable difference to those watching on and even to those far away. And then it all started again as Barnabas and Saul head off. I guess the question for us is whether that Great Commission or even our more nuanced mission at St. Matthew's to grow God's church through the gospel, to make faithful disciples in Manly and beyond, and you can see the clear links between the two, whether, whether those make a difference at ground level here. And I guess one of the ways you can answer that question is, is by asking another one, what part do I play in it all? I mean, all of us mix with people who don't yet know the news of Jesus. It was interesting to read about how those who'd been scattered from Jerusalem and those unnamed innovators from Cyprus and Cyrene, they just told the good news about Jesus to whom they mixed with, uh, Greeks included. And there are just people in our lives that we can tell. We can just tell them the story. There just are people we can invite to Alpha, people uh, who come along to ESL and Soup Kitchen, people we just mix with day to day. I mean, I think this is a good reason for us to return to working in the office when it's safe for at least a few days a week. Because actually being able to mix with people we can tell the story of Jesus is more important than our domestic convenience, isn't it? We learn from the church in Antioch that we uh, need to be prepared to open our wallets to support those who go to other nations or other part of our nation with the news of Jesus. And we'll be asking people to do that in a few weeks' time. But don't you think that living where we do in this era, the nations of the world come to Manly, which is why our mission statement talks about Manly and beyond. There's just plenty of action on both fronts, as we've just seen. Now, some of us might be more involved in the front end of things, telling the good news of Jesus to people who don't know it yet. When you think about it, all of us are involved in the teaching side of things because we're all disciples, and disciple means student. We all need to be taught. We're better taught when we're taught together, which is why when we open up again in a few weeks' time, we'll be asking you to return if it's safe for you to do so. Of course, some of us will be more involved in the teaching front, um, people like kids' church leaders, like the ESL team we just heard about, like youth leaders, like our growth group leaders who week in, week out, spread that teaching load and teach their groups about faith and obedience. And I'm so thankful to them or to you if you're one of them um, for all your efforts, especially during the lockdown. Some of us, and hopefully the best, at the prompting of the Spirit will leave us to start all over again in a new ministry or in new places to continue growing God's church beyond manly. And the rest of us should be prepared to send them off with our prayers and our blessing and our encouragement. Well, that might be just a special few, but it seems to me that most of us, maybe all of us, 
in one way or another, can tell, can speak, can learn, can teach, can give and can go so that the church which first grew from Jerusalem into Antioch rather explosively might continue to grow in Manly and beyond.